0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Holland by George Edmondson. Chapter 20. Chapter Summary. The War of the Spanish Succession and the Treaties of Utrecht. 1702-1715. to William III left no successor to take his place. The younger branch of the Nassau family, who had been, from the time of John of Nassau, stadtholders of Friesland, and except for one short interval, of Krodingen, and who, by the marriage of William Frederick with Albertina Agnes, younger daughter of Frederick Henry, could claim descent in the female line from William the Silent, had rendered for several generations distinguished services to the Republic, but in 1702 had as its only representative a boy of 14 years of age by John William Friso. As already narrated, the relations between his family, Henry Casimir and William III, had for some time been far from friendly, but a reconciliation took place before Henry Casimir's untimely death, and the king became godfather to John William Friso and by his will left him his heir. The boy had succeeded by hereditary right to the posts of Stadtholder and Captain-General of Friesland and Groningen, under the guardianship of his mother, but such claims as he had to succeed William III as Stadtholder in the other provinces were, on account of his youth, completely ignored. As in 1650, Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Gelderland, and Overissel, reverted once more to a stadtholderless form of government. Fortunately, this implied no change of external policy. The men, who had for years been fellow workers with King William, and were in complete sympathy with his aims, continued to hold the most important posts in the government of the Republic, and to control its policy. That policy consisted in the maintenance of a close alliance with England, for the purpose of curbing the ambitious designs, of Louis the Fourteenth, foremost among these statesmen were Anthony Hintius, the Council Pensionary of Holland; Simon van Slinkeland, Secretary of the Council of States in sixteen ninety, and Jan Hop, the Treasurer General of the Union. In England, the recognition by Louis of the Prince of Wales as King James the Third had thoroughly aroused the popular feeling against France, and Anne, the new Queen, determined to carry out her predecessor's plans. The two maritime powers, closely bound together by common interests, and the ties which had arisen between them during the thirteen years of the reign of the King Stadtholder, were to form the nucleus of a coalition with Austria and a number of the German states, including Prussia and Hanover, to which Savoy somewhat later adhered, pledged to support the claims of the Archduke Charles to the Spanish throne. For the Dutch it was an all-important question, for which Philip V, reigning at Madrid, the hegemony of France in Europe, seemed to be assured. Already French troops were in possession of the chief fortresses of the so-called Spanish Netherlands. Face to face with such a menace, it was not difficult for Hainzius to obtain not only the assent of the States-General, but of the estates of Holland, practically without a dissenting voice, to declare war upon France and Spain, May 8th, 1702, and this was quickly followed by similar declarations by England and Austria. The Grand Alliance had an outward appearance of great strength, but in reality it had all the weaknesses of a coalition, its armies being composed of contingents from a number of countries, whose governments had divergent aims and strategic objects, and it was opposed by a power under absolute rule, with numerous and veteran armies, inspired by a long tradition of victory under brilliant leaders. In 1702, however, the successors of Turenne and Luxembourg were by no means of the same caliber as those great generals. On the other hand, the Allies were doubly fortunate in being led by a man of exceptional gifts, John Churchill, Earl, and sometimes afterwards Duke of Marlborough, was placed in supreme command of the Anglo-Dutch armies. Through the influence of his wife, with the weak Queen Anne, the Whig party, of which Marlborough and his friend Godolphin, the Lord Treasurer, were the heads, was maintained in secure possession of power, and Marlborough thus entered upon his command, in the full confidence of having the unwavering support of the home government behind him. Still, this would have availed little but for the consummate abilities of this extraordinary man. As a general he displayed a military genius, both as a strategist and a tactician, which has rarely been surpassed. For ten years he pursued a career of victory, not marred by a single defeat, and this in spite of the fact that his army was always composed of heterogeneous elements." that his subordinates of different nationalities were jealous of his authority, and of one another, and above all, as will be seen, that his bold and well-laid plans were again and again hindered and thwarted by the timidity and obstinacy of the civilian deputies, who were placed by the States General at his side. Had Marlborough been unhampered, the war would probably have ended some years before it did, as it was, The wonderful successes of the general were made possible by his skill and tact as diplomatist. He had, moreover, the good fortune to have at his side in the imperialist general, Prince Eugène of Savoy, a commander second only to himself in brilliance and leadership. In almost all wars the Austrian alliance has proved a weak support on which to trust, but now thanks to the outstanding capacity of Eugene, the armies of Austria were able to achieve many triumphs. The vigorous participation of the Emperor in this war, in support of the claims of his second son, was only made possible by the victories of the Italian general over the Turks who had overrun Hungary and threatened Vienna. And now, in the still more important sphere of operations in the West, in which for a series of years he had to cooperate with Marlborough. It is to the infinite credit of both these great men that they worked harmoniously and smoothly together, so that at no time was there even a hint of any jealousy between them. In any estimate of the great achievements of Marlborough, it must never be forgotten that he not only had Eugene at his right hand in the field, but Haesius in the council chamber. Haynesius had always worked loyally and sympathetically with William III, and it was in the same spirit that he worked with the English Duke, who brought William's life-task to its triumphant accomplishment. Between Marlborough and Haynesius, as between Marlborough and Eugène, there was no friction, surely a convincing tribute to the adroit and tactful persuasiveness of a commanding personality. In July 1702, Marlborough, at the head of 65,000 men, faced Marshal Boufflet, with a French army, almost as strong numerically. The one in front of Niemwegen, the other in the neighbourhood of Liège. Leaving a force of 25,000 Dutch and Brandenburgers to besiege Kaiserswerth, Marlborough, by skilful manoeuvring, prevented Boufflet from attempting a relief. And would on two occasions have been able to inflict a severe defeat upon him, had he not been each time thwarted by the cautious timidity of the Dutch deputy. Kaiserswerth, however, fell, and in turn, Rheinberg, Vonloo, Hruemont, and Liege, and the campaign ended successfully, leaving the Allies in command of the Lower Rhine and Lower Meuse. That of 1703 was marred even more effectually than that of the previous year by the interference of the deputies and the ill-concealed opposition to Marlborough of certain Dutch generals, notably of Slangerberg. The Duke was very angry, and bitter recriminations ensued. In the end Slangerberg was removed from his command, and the appointment of Owerkerk as the field-marshal of the Dutch forces relieved the tension— though the deputies were still present at headquarters, much to Marlborough's annoyance. The campaign resulted in the capture of Bonn, Huy, and Limburg, but there was no general action. The year seventeen o four saw the genius of Marlborough at length assert itself. The French had placed great armies in the field, Fielroy in the Netherlands, Tallard in Bavaria, where in conjunction with the Bavarian forces he threatened to descend the Danube into the heart of Austria. Vienna itself was in the greatest danger. The troops under Louis of Baden and under Eugène were, even when united, far weaker than their adversaries. In these circumstances Marlborough, determined by a bold strategical stroke, to execute a flank march from the Netherlands right across the front of the Franco-Bavarian army and effect a junction with the imperialists. He had to deceive the timid Dutch deputies by feigning to descend the Meuse with the intention of working round Vilroy's flank, then leaving Uckerk to contain that marshal. He set out on his daring adventure early in May, and carried it out with complete success. His departure had actually relieved the Netherlands, for Vilroy had felt it necessary with a large part of his forces to follow Marlborough and reinforce the Franco-Bavarians— under Marshal Tallard, and the Elector. The two armies met at Blenheim, Hochstadt. On August the 13th, the battle resulted in the crushing victory of the Allies under Marlborough and Eugène. 11,000 prisoners were taken, among them Tallard himself. The remnant of the French army retired across the Rhine. Vienna was saved, and all Bavaria was overrun by the imperialists. Meanwhile, at sea, the Anglo-Dutch fleet was incontestably superior to the enemy, and the operations were confined to the immediate neighbourhood of the peninsula. William Third had, before his death, been preparing an expedition for the capture of Cadiz. His plan was actually carried out in 1702, when a powerful fleet under the supreme command of Admiral Sir George Rooke sailed for Cadiz, but the attack failed owing to the incompetence of the Duke of Ormond who commanded the military forces. In this expedition a strong Dutch squadron under Philip van Almanda participated. Almanda was a capable seaman trained in the school of Tromp and De Ruyter and he took a most creditable part in the action off Vigo, October the 23rd, in which a large portion of the silver fleet was captured and the Franco-Spanish fleet which formed its escort destroyed. The maritime operations of 1703 were uneventful the French fleet being successfully blockaded in Toulon harbour. The accession of Portugal in the course of this year to the Grand Alliance was important in that it opened the estuary of the Tagus as a naval base and enabled the Archduke Charles to land with a body of troops escorted by an Anglo-Dutch fleet under Rook and Kalemberg. This fleet later in the year, August fourth, was fortunate in capturing Gibraltar without much loss the defences having been neglected and inadequately garrisoned. In this feat of arms, which gave to the English the possession of the rock fortress that commenced the entrance into the Mediterranean, the Dutch, under Kallenberg, had a worthy share, as also in the great sea-fight off Malaga on August the twenty-fourth, against the French fleet under the count of Toulouse. The French had slightly superior numbers, and the Allies, who had not replenished their stores after the siege of Gibraltar, were short of ammunition. Though a drawn battle, so far as actual losses were concerned, it was decisive in its results. The French fleet withdrew to the shelter of Toulon harbour, and the Allied supremacy in the Midland Sea was never again throughout the wars seriously challenged. The Dutch ships at the Battle of Malaga were twelve in number, and fought gallantly, but it was the last action of any importance in which the navy of Holland took part. There had been dissensions between the English and Dutch commanders, and from this time forward the admiralties made no effort to maintain their fleet in the state of efficiency in which it had been left by William the III. The cost of the army fell heavily upon Holland, and money was grudged for the maintenance of the navy, whose services, owing to the weakness of the enemy, were not required. The military campaign of 1705 produced small results, the plans of Marlborough for an active offensive being thwarted by the Dutch deputies. The Duke's complaints only resulted in one set of deputies being replaced by another set of civilians, equally impracticable. There was also another reason for a slackening of vigour. The Emperor Leopold I died on May 5th. His successor, Joseph I, had no children. So that the Archduke Charles became the heir apparent, to all the possessions of the Austrian Habsburgs. Louis the Fourteenth therefore, seized the opportunity to make secret overtures of peace to some of the more influential Dutch statesmen through the Marquis d'Halegna, at that time a prisoner in the hands of the Dutch. The French were willing to make many concessions in return for the recognition of Philip V as King of Spain. In the autumn, we, oui the Pensionary of Amsterdam, and others with Dalegna and Rue, an accredited agent of the French government. Matters went so far that we went to London on a secret mission to discuss the matter with the English minister. The English cabinet, however, refused to recognise Philip V, and as the Dutch demand for a strong barrier of fortresses along the frontier of Netherlands was deemed inadmissible at Versailles, the negotiations came to an end. In 1706, Marlborough's bold proposal to join Eugene in Italy, and with their united forces to drive the French out of that country and to march upon Toulon, failed to gain the assent of the Dutch deputies. The Duke, after much controversy and consequent delay, had to content himself with a campaign in Belgium. It was brilliantly carried out. On Whit Sunday, May the 23rd, at Ramillies the Allies encountered the enemy under the command of Marshal Villeroy and the Elector of Bavaria. The French were utterly defeated with very heavy loss, and such was the vigour of the pursuit that the shattered army was obliged to retire to Coutres, leaving Brabant and Flanders undefended. In rapid succession, Louvain, Antwerp, Ghent, Bruges and other towns surrendered to Marlborough, and a little later ostend dendermonde manin and At, and the archduke charles was acknowledged as sovereign by the greater part of the southern netherlands in italy and spain also things had gone well with the allies this series of successes led louis the fourteenth to make fresh overtures of peace to the states general whom the french king hoped to seduce from the grand alliance by the bait of commercial advantages both with Spain and France, and a good barrier he was even ready to yield the crown of Spain to the Archduke Charles on condition that Philippa of Anjou were acknowledged as sovereign of the Spanish possessions in Italy. Heius, however, was loyal to the English alliance, and in face of the determination of the English government not to consent to any division of the Spanish inheritance, the negotiations again came to nothing. The year seventeen O seven saw a change of fortune. Austria was threatened by the victorious advance of Charles the Twelfth of Sweden through Poland into Saxony. A French army under Villars crossed the Rhine May twenty seventh and advanced far into southeastern Germany. The defense of their own territories caused several of the German princes to retain their troops at home instead of sending them as mercenaries to serve in the Netherlands under Marlborough. The Duke, therefore, found himself unable to attack the superior French army under Vendôme, and acted steadfastly on the defensive. An attempt by Eugène, supported by the French fleet to capture Toulon, ended in dismal failure, and the retreat of the imperialists, with heavy loss into Italy. In Spain, the victory of Berwick at Almanza made Philip V the master of all Spain, except a part of Catalonia. But... Though Marlborough had been reduced to immobility in 1707, the following campaign was to witness another of his wonderful victories. At the head of a mixed force of 80,000 men, he was awaiting the arrival of Eugène with an imperialist army of 35,000, when Vendome unexpectedly took the offensive, while he still had superiority in numbers over his English opponent. Rapidly overrunning western Flanders, he made himself master of Bruges and Ghent, and led siege to Oudenard. By a series of brilliant movements, Marlborough outmarched and outmanoeuvred his adversary, and interposing his army between him and the French frontier, compelled him to risk a general engagement. It took place on July eleventh, seventeen 1708, and ended in the complete defeat of the French, who were only saved by the darkness from utter destruction. Had the bold project of Marlborough to march into France forthwith been carried out, a deadly blow would have been delivered against the very vitals of the enemy's power, and Louis the Fourteenth probably compelled to sue for peace on the Allies' terms. But this time, not only the Dutch deputies, but also Eugène, were opposed to the daring venture, and it was decided that Eugène should besiege Lille, while Marlborough, with the field army, covered the operations. Lille was strongly fortified, and Marshal Boufflet made a gallant defence. The siege began in mid-August. The town surrendered on October the 22nd, but the citadel did not fall until December the ninth. Vendôme did his best to cut off Eugène's supply of munitions and stores, and at one time the besiegers were reduced to straits. The French marshal did not however venture to force an engagement with Marlborough's covering army portion of which under General Webb after gaining a striking victory over a French force at Huenendal, September 13th conducted at a critical moment a large train of supplies from Ostend into Eugene's camp as a consequence of the capture of Lille the French withdrew from Flanders into their own territory Ghent and Bruges being reoccupied by the allies with a mere show of resistance. The reverses of 1708 induced the French king to be ready to yield much for the sake of peace. He offered the Dutch a strong barrier, a favourable treaty of commerce, and the demolition of the defences of Dunkirk. And there were many in Holland who would have accepted his terms, but their English and Austrian allies insisted on the restoration of Louis' German conquests, and that the king should by force if necessary, compel his grandson to leave Spain. Such was the exhaustion of France, that Louis would have consented to almost any terms, however harsh, but he refused absolutely to use coercion against Philip V. The negotiations went on through the spring, nor did they break down until June 1709, when the exorbitant demands of the Allies made further progress impossible. Louis issued a manifesto calling upon his subjects to support him in resisting terms which were dishonouring to France. He met with a splendid response from all classes, and a fine army of ninety thousand men was equipped and placed in the field under the command of Marshal Villa. The long delay of the negotiations prevented Marlborough and Eugene from taking the field until June. They found Villa at meanwhile entrenched himself in Artois in a very strong position. Marlborough's proposal to advance by the sea coast and outflank the enemy, being opposed both by Eugène and the Dutch deputies as too daring. Siege was laid to Tournay. Campaigns in those days were dilatory affairs. Tournay was not captured until september the third, and the Allies, having overcome this obstacle without any active interference, moved forward to besiegement. They found Villa posted at Malplaquet on a narrow front skilfully fortified and protected on both flanks by woods a terrible struggle ensued september eleventh seventeen o nine the bloodiest in the war the dutch troops gallantly led by the prince of orange attacked the french right but were repulsed with very heavy losses for some time the fight on the left and the centre of the french line was undecided the attacking columns being driven back many times but at length the allies succeeded in turning the extreme left, and also after fearful slaughter, in piercing the centre, and the French were compelled to retreat. They had lost 12,000 men, but 23,000 of the Allies had fallen. The Dutch divisions had suffered the most heavily, losing almost half their strength. The immediate result of this hard-won victory was the taking of Mons, October 9th. The lateness of the season prevented any further operations, Nothing decisive had been achieved, for on all the other fields of action, on the Ride, on the Piedmont frontier, and in Spain, the advantage had on the whole been with the French and Spaniards. Negotiations proceeded during the winter, 1709 to 1710. Dutch and French representatives meeting both at The Hague and at Gertrudenberg. The states were anxious for peace, and Louis was willing to make the concessions required of him but Philip V refused to relinquish a crown which he held by the practically unanimous approval of the Spanish people. The Emperor, on the other hand, was obstinate in claiming the undivided Spanish inheritance for the Archduke Charles. The Maritime Powers, however, would not support him in this claim, and the Maritime Powers meant England, for Holland followed her lead, being perfectly satisfied with the conditions of the first barrier treaty which had been drawn up and agreed upon between the States-General and the English Government on October twenty-ninth, seventeen 1709. By this secret treaty, the Dutch obtained the right to hold and to garrison a number of towns along the French frontier, the possession of which would render them the real masters of Belgium. Indeed, it was manifest that, although the Dutch did not dispute the sovereign rights of the Archduke Charles, they intended to make the southern Netherlands an economic dependency of the Republic, which provided for its defence. The negotiations at Heer dragged on until July 1710, and were finally broken off owing to the insistence of the Dutch envoys Huys and Van Dussen, upon conditions which, even in their exhausted state, France was too proud to concede. Meanwhile, Marlborough and Eugène, unable to tend Villars to risk a battle, contented themselves with a succession of sieges. Douai, Béthune, and Anne fell, one after the other, the French army keeping watch behind its strongly fortified lines. This was a very meagre result, but Marlborough now felt his position to be so insecure that he dared not take any risks. His wife, so long omnipotent at court, had been supplanted in the Queen's favour, Godolphin and the Whig party, had been swept from power, and a Tory ministry, bent upon peace, had taken their place. Marlborough knew that his period of dictatorship was at an end, and he would have resigned his command, but for the pressing instances of Eugène, Hensius, and other leaders of the Allies. The desire of the Tory ministry to bring the long-drawn-out hostilities to an end was accentuated by the death, on April 17, 1711, of the Emperor Joseph an event which left his brother Charles heir to all the possession of the Austrian Habsburgs. The Grand Alliance had been formed, and the war waged to maintain the balance of power in Europe, but such a result would not be achieved by a revival of the Empire of Charles V, and the person of the man who had now become the head of the House of Austria. Even had the Whigs remained in office, they could hardly have continued to give active support to the cause of the Habsburg claimant in Spain. One of the consequences of the death of Joseph I, then, was to render the Tory minister, Henry St. more anxious to enter into negotiations for peace. Another was the paralyzing of active operations in the field. Eugène had been summoned to Germany to watch over the meeting of the Imperial Diet at Frankfurt, and Marlborough was left with an army considerably inferior in numbers to that of his opponent, Villas. Thus, the only fruit of the campaign was the captor of Bouchon. Meanwhile, the French minister, Torcy, entered into secret communications with St. John, intimating that France was ready to negotiate directly with England, but at first without the cognizance of the States. The English ministry, on their part, under the influence of St. John, showed themselves to be ready to throw over their allies, to abandon the Habsburg cause in Spain, and to come to an agreement with France, on terms advantageous to England, For French diplomacy, always alert and skilful, these proceedings were quite legitimate, but it was scarcely honourable for the English government, while the Grand Alliance was still in existence, to carry on these negotiations in profound secrecy. In August, matters had so far advanced, that messe was sent over from Paris to London entrusted with definite proposals. In October, the preliminaries of peace were virtually settled between the two powers. Meanwhile, the Dutch had been informed, through Lord Stratford, the English envoy at The Hague, of what was going on, and the news aroused no small indignation and alarm, but great pressure was brought to bear upon them, and knowing that without England they could not continue the war, the States-General at last, in fear for their barrier, consented on November 21st to send envoys to a peace congress to be held at Utrecht on the basis of the Anglo-French preliminaries. It was in vain that the Emperor Charles VI protested both at London and the Hague, or that Eugène was dispatched on a special mission to England in January 1712. The English Ministry had made up their minds to conclude peace with or without the Emperor's assent, and the Congress opened at the beginning of the year 1712 without the presence of any Austrian plenipotentiaries, though they appeared later. The Dutch provinces sent two envoys each, the conferences at Utrecht were, however, little more than futile debates, and the Congress was held there rather as a concession to save the amour propre of the States rather than to settle the terms of peace. The real negotiations were carried on secretly between England and France, and after a visit by St. John, now Viscount Bolingbroke, in person to Paris in August, all points of difference between the two governments were amicably arranged. Spain followed the lead of France, and the States, knowing that they could not go on with the war without England, were reluctantly obliged to accept the Anglo-French proposals. Their concurrence might not have been so easily obtained, but for the unfortunate course of the campaign of 1712. Marlborough had now been replaced in the chief command by the Duke of Ormond. Eugène, counting upon English support, had taken Quignois on July the 4th, and was about to invest Londres when Ormond informed him that an armistice had been concluded between the French and English governments. On July the 16th, the English contingent withdrew to Dunkirk, which had been surrendered by the French as a pledge of good faith. Villas seized the opportunity to make a surprise attack on the isolated Dutch at the bridge of Denon, July the 24th and a panic taking place completely annihilated their whole force of 12,000 men, with slight loss to himself. Eugène had to retreat, abandoning his magazines, and Douai, Quenois, and Bouchon fell into the hands of the French marshal. These disasters convinced the Dutch of their helplessness when deprived of English help, and instructions were given to their envoys at Utrecht on December twenty-ninth to give their assent to the terms agreed upon and indeed dictated by the governments of England and France. Making the best of the situation, the Dutch statesmen, confronted with the growing self-assertion of the French plenipotentiaries, concluded on January 30th, 1713, a new offensive and defensive alliance with England. This treaty of alliance is commonly called the Second Barrier Treaty, because it abrogated the Barrier Treaty of 1709, and was much more favourable to France. It was not until all these more or less secret negotiations were over that the Congress, after being suspended for some months, resumed its sittings at Utrecht. The peace of Utrecht, which ensued, is really a misnomer. No general treaty was agreed upon and signed, but a series of separate treaties between the belligerent powers. This was what France had been wishing for for some time, and by the connivance of England she achieved it. The treaty between these two countries was signed on April eleventh, 1713, and such was the dominant position of England that her allies, with the single exception of the Emperor, had to follow her lead. Treaties with the States-General, with Savoy, Brandenburg and Portugal, were all signed on the same day. Louis Fourteenth had good right to congratulating himself on obtaining far more favourable terms than he could have dared to hope in 1710 or 11. Philip V was recognized as King of Spain and the Indies, but had solemnly to renounce his right of succession to the French throne, and his claim to the Spanish possessions in the Netherlands and in Italy. A treaty between England and Spain was signed on July 13, 1713. That between the States-General and Spain was delayed until June 26, 1714, owing to the difficulties raised by the Emperor, who, though deserted by his allies, continued the war single-handed, but with a single lack of success. He was forced to yield and make peace at Rastatt in a treaty which was confirmed by the Imperial Diet at Baden in Switzerland, on September seventh, 1714. By this treaty, the French king retained practically all his conquests, while Charles the Sixth, though he did not recognize the title of Philip V, contented himself with the acquisition of the Spanish Netherlands, and of the Milanese and Naples. Into the details of these several treaties, it is unnecessary here to enter, except in so far as they affected the United Provinces. The power that benefited more than any other was Great Britain, for the Peace of Utrecht laid the foundation of her colonial empire, and left her from this time forward the first naval and maritime power in the world. Holland, though her commerce was still great, and her colonial possessions both rich and extensive, had henceforth to see herself more and more overshadowed, and dominated by her former rival. Nevertheless, the treaties concluded by the States-General at this time, were decidedly advantageous to the Republic, that, with France signed on April 11, 1713, placed the Spanish Netherlands in the possession of the States-General, to be held by them in trust for Charles VI, till such time as the Emperor came to an agreement with them about a barrier. France in this matter acted in the name of Spain, and was the intermediary, through whose good offices Spanish or Upper Gelderland was surrendered to Prussia. Most important of all to the Dutch was the treaty with the Emperor concluded at Antwerp, November 15, 1715. This is generally styled the Third Barrier Treaty, the first being that of 1709, the second, that of 1713, at Utrecht. The States-General finally obtained, what was for their interest, a thoroughly satisfactory settlement. They obtained the right to place garrisons, amounting in all to 35,000 men, in Furnes, Warnaton, Ypres, Canoc, Tournai, Manon, and Namur, and three-fifths of the cost was to be borne by the Austrian government pledge certain revenues of their newly acquired Belgic provinces to the Dutch for the purpose. The strong position in which such a treaty placed the Republic against aggression, either from the side of France or Austria, was made stronger by being guaranteed by the British government. End of chapter 20